0: Hey everybody, Jeremy here. We have a bonus episode for you today. This is the seminar that I presented at the IFCA International Convention that took place in Cincinnati back in June. And uh, man, I, I listened to this after they released it, just so I could hear how it went, because I only spoke it, of course. I didn't actually attend my own seminar, so I wanted to listen to it from the perspective of an attender and there's a lot of content in here. Uh, There was a PowerPoint that I had during the actual seminar (laughs) along with a handout. You obviously don't have either one of those things. You just have my voice going through this content. So I'm just giving a warning here up front. There's a lot of content. This is actually something that could have been taught over three to five hours, and I'm teaching it over the course of, of one hour. So I hope it's helpful. I hope it's not too confusing, but would love to hear your feedback on that and would appreciate any comments, questions that you have, not only about this particular episode, but even about the show. Would love to hear from you on those things. Also, I wanted to mention that we have the new format of the show launching very soon. The new format will begin on Wednesday, August 9th with the first episode of the Do Theology Experience, which is something I'm doing solo. It's long-form conversations, usually about two hours. And my first guest for the first episode on Wednesday, August 9th is Matt Slick. It will be a very entertaining episode for you, so I can't wait for that to release, and the the new format will begin. So expect new content in a new format in August, and uh, until then, hopefully this episode will get you thinking, and again, would love to hear from you with any thoughts you have. Have a blessed day. Uh, Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to myself for those of you who uh, have not met me. I know that I haven't met everybody here, so My name is Jeremy Howard. I am from central Missouri originally. My wife and I are both from Sedalia, Missouri, if anybody knows where that is. We uh, got married there, and then I went and attended Calvary Bible College. That's where I got my degree before we joined Biblical Ministries Worldwide and went out to Utah. We went to Payson, Utah, a church in uh, Payson that was planted by BMW in 1970, and we were Uh, by God's grace, used to help get that church to graduation. So that church is now an independent, self-sustaining church, and I've continued on there as the pastor. We love our church, we love living in Utah, and we're always looking for more Christians to come to Utah. We have a dearth of uh, Christians and would love to see more people move out there, to move away from their grandkids and come hang out with us. Show of hands. No. (laughs) we, uh, we, we do love it out there. It's home now. I'm also a co-host for the Do Theology podcast. I do that with Ken Chipchase. Hey, thanks. Ken Olson's a big fan. Uh, and we talk about theology uh, a lot, and that'll come up later in this uh, presentation. I'm The kind of person who likes to conceptualize things as much as I can, if you're familiar with Do Theology and our chart, that's just like one big concept put on a sheet of paper, our doctrines chart, I like to learn as much as I can and try to conceptualize what's going on uh, and summarize uh, complex issues to the best of my ability, and that's kind of what this is today. You know, the topic here is understanding deconstruction and disentanglement. This isn't going to be exhaustive, okay, but I'm hoping that I'll be catching some of the main themes, some of the main points, the, the, the things that are at play in the deconstruction and disentanglement movement. And I'm certainly not saying that I understand it all, okay, who, who can fully understand apostasy? Right, I mean, it is a a tragic mystery is really what it is. Uh, So I'm not saying that, but I want us together to think through these things that we can synthesize some of the information and maybe get to a place where we can better dialogue with those who are going through deconstruction and disentanglement. These are the questions I want us to answer today. If you have a handout, you see these on your handout. if you don 't have a handout, you can find those somewhere on a chair back there there 's a stack of them, and maybe someone would be kind enough to like get them out to people. If people want to raise their hands or something, we can get those out since some of you just showed up a little late i uh, wasn 't able to get those to you. But there are four questions we want to answer. Number one, who is a fundamentalist? Number two, why do people leave fundamentalism? Three, where are they going? And four, how should we respond? So as we endeavor to answer the first question, who is a fundamentalist, I do want to pause and say that there have been some really good things written on this in recent history. There's a guy named Josh Bice. He's the founder of G3. Maybe you've heard of the G3 Conference or now the G3 Church Network based out of Atlanta. And Josh Bice uh, wrote an article that actually used the headline that I was going to use uh, for this called The New F Word, Fundamentalism. <laughs> I thought that would raise some eyebrows at IFCA, but uh, I didn't want to plagiarize, so I changed that. But he, he wrote an article of October in October of last year about fundamentalism. And our own Dr. Vargas wrote an article just earlier this month for TruthScript, and in that article, Dr. Vargas walks through a lot of these issues that are at play. And so I want to first commend those articles to you, one by Josh Bice, one by Dr. Vargas, that's about fundamentalism. But as we seek to answer this question succinctly, who is a fundamentalist, we actually have to condition this a little bit more and get more specific. And we'll start with who is a fundamentalist to us? <laughs> Not just who is a fundamentalist, but we'll start with The people in this room, as we've gathered together as self-proclaimed fundamentalists, who are we? And I think this is a pretty good IFCA-agreeable definition. A fundamentalist is one who holds to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible and who defends those doctrines based on the commitment to the Bible's inerrancy. That last part is particularly important as we start to distinguish ourselves from perhaps more reformed or confessional groups that are out there, and we'll get into that in a bit. So that's how we could answer the question for us, defining who is a fundamentalist to us. But perhaps more importantly, the question is also who is a fundamentalist to them? And by them I mean non-fundamentalist, non-self-proclaiming fundamentalist. And there are many things we could say here. A lot of people would characterize us as outdated, cold, uptight, (laughs) fuddy-duddies. Maybe that's a badge you would wear proudly, I don't know, but that's a label that we get. We also are characterized as people who enjoy division, those who are known for what they are opposing more than what they are promoting. You are familiar, I'm sure, with the repurposing of our acronym to I Fight Christians Anywhere. Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about here. Those who enjoy division, who want to fight, enjoy fighting. Also, we're known as legalistic condemners, depending on who you talk to. And it really doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, orthodox, fundamentalist, biblical Christians like we are here today, or heretical groups that use the label fundamentalist. This could be in reference to the Gothards or the Church of Christ or United Pentecostals or even Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. That is just a group we kind of get lumped into. We can be known as conspiracy theorists, and not just the types that hang out at Roswell and believe in aliens and all that stuff, but conspiracy theorists like there's a, a bunch of people out there in Big Eva who really don't like us and they want to sink Christianity. Or perhaps some people would say Any translating committee out there that's making a new English translation beyond the King James Bible is trying to rob Christianity of the fundamental doctrines that exist. It's like a conspiracy theory about how Bible translations work. We can be labeled as anti-intellectualists, people who are unwilling to listen, people who are unwilling to go back and read important works through church history, who are just against academia. Those who love politics and prioritize politics, even from the pulpit. Let's face it, today, a lot of people in America consider fundamentalists as those people who talk about Trump more than Jesus, those people who call themselves Christians but are more interested in making America great again. We can also be labeled as extremists, those who have a fleshly zeal, those who aren't very winsome, those who aren't uh, reasonable, but rather extreme. And as we consider all of this, answering that first question, who is a fundamentalist, we do have to recognize that perception is reality. That is just the bottom line. By nature of tagging yourself, as I do, as a fundamentalist, you are going to be grouped in with one or more of the other labels that exist in that list. It's gotten very confused for many, and it's hard for the general culture to recognize the difference between the types. And you could call the list of those bullet points there pop fundamentalism or cultural fundamentalism, if you want. And what we are, of course, would be, at least what we're aiming for, would be biblical fundamentalists. And it's hard for people to recognize the difference between the types. So as an example, I want to share with you some YouTube comments. There's a a YouTube channel that I really enjoy. It's called Ready to Harvest. There's a young guy who's an independent fundamental Baptist up in South Dakota or North Dakota. He's a professor at a small Bible college. And he's got this YouTube channel that is devoted to going through denominations and comparing and contrasting denominations. It's extremely educational. He's very fair. It's, It's really a beneficial thing. Well, just a couple of months ago, he released a video on the IFCA. How many of you knew that? Raise your hand. Okay. Tens of thousands of people have seen this video where he's talking about us. Now you've got to wander into the comment section, right? Here's a comment. Bloodbot Big Phil R. I don't know if he's in here, but if he is, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you. He says, There doesn't seem to be much separating IFCA International from more moderate independent Baptist groups... Open Brethren Assemblies, or the Evangelical Free Church of America. In the UK, where I live, the non-denominational church I attend is affiliated with an informal network, the FIEC, very similar to IFCAI, and who have had fraternal links in the past. However, and then he goes on to talk about dispensationalism, atonement, and everything else. I don't even have his full comment on here. Another comment says, this is one of my former denominations. Ooh, we hate to hear that, don't we? That's not what we are. Chosen by my parents, age 15 through 23, left due to prohibitions against movies, playing cards, dancing, never had problems with doctrine. 21 likes on that comment, and that was just nine days after the video went up or whatever, and so this isn't recent. A lot of people agreed with that. And then another person says, I was raised in an IFCA church and left when I was in my early 20s. I'm happy to see they have moderated their stance on alcohol use to bring it in line with the Word of God. It's also pleasing to hear that they're standing firm against liberal woke theology that seems to be infecting so many churches. This comment starts with LOL, all caps. That's a bad sign. And he lists a lot of things, but I want to highlight, it might be really hard to see there, but he highlights that we are militaristically dogmatic, it would be surprising if there was any contemporary worship music in our churches, and most IFCA are strict 1611 King James-only types. Well, um, that's his, his experience. Perception is reality, and there he is commenting. Someone responded uh, to his comment, did a very good job at kind of explaining that things have changed uh, from perhaps what he experienced. Someone else says, hey, my childhood finally showed up on the channel. <laughs> and someone else replied, mine too. Now, that can be a little funny and heartwarming, but at the same time, we recognize they're talking about their association was in the past. They've moved on from IFCA and likely moved on from biblical fundamentalism. So, perception is reality. And by embracing this fundamentalist moniker, we will end up being lumped in with Gothards, Church of Christ, all these people, the IFB 1611 King James only type people. And for an example, there's this conference going on in Kentucky. Uh, actually, the same state we're in now, and I think it's just a month or so away, the Called to Freedom Conference. It's a conference for the purpose of rebuilding theology, faith, and community for those who have left or are leaving hyper-fundamentalism or supporting those who are. While the host's personal experiences are in Oneness Pentecostal and Trinitarian Holiness Pentecostal groups, we look forward to welcoming attendees who have backgrounds in the conservative holiness movement, Branhamism, Independent Fundamental Baptist Churches, Bill Gothard's teachings, Mennonite Churches, Seventh-day Adventism, and more. And those of us who have studied these groups, been around these groups for a while, we would like to raise our hand and say, wait, there, there's a lot of differences going on in those groups. And they're all using the label fundamentalist, and that is where this really gets confused. So a lot of people are leaving churches like ours as we are lumped in with all these other groups that we don't necessarily want to be lumped in with. And there's some good news in all of that. One piece of good news is that there are many who leave these churches that still end up in good places. Maybe they'll end up joining a Southern Baptist church, maybe they'll go to an evangelical free church, whatever the case may be, and what they're doing is not deconstructing the faith, they're not abandoning our doctrine, but instead they're merely disentangling from the bad labels. They're not disconnecting from true biblical fundamentalism. That called to Freedom Conference, I think, is actually an example of that. I've looked at their doctrine and it's like, hey, you guys are still fundamentalists. But there are other examples, too. Perhaps you've seen Ginger Duggar going around with uh, her book tour now that she's written a book, and she's leaving that Gothard movement, and she's talking openly about it. Uh, So she's leaving what many would call fundamentalism, but she's actually remaining in what we would call biblical fundamentalism. There's a podcast out there called the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. What a name. But if you look at their doctrine, they're fundamentalists. They're still fundamentalists. And so they haven't left. They've just using that word in a cultural sense, the pop fundamentalist sense. But the bad news is that it's a reality. Many do leave biblical fundamentalism altogether as they deconstruct the faith or they disentangle from fundamentalism. So let's talk about the second question, why do people leave fundamentalism? And this should be relatively quick to answer. To get to the point, uh, most often one of those pejorative labels, if you remember that slide with the uh, bullet points, one of those pejorative labels is either truly experienced or perceived as the person has been in a fundamentalist church, and relational conflict then moves a person to seek out another kind of fellowship. Rarely does a member of an IFCA-type church, for example, leave purely because he disagrees with the doctrine. I very rarely hear about or experience someone just waking up one day and saying, you know, I totally disagree with our distinctives now, and then they're gone. Instead, there's some sort of brush with cultural fundamentalism, one of those pejorative labels, and that tends to move the needle when someone decides to leave. And this is anecdotal, of course, so this isn't like based on hard statistics or anything, but there are a lot of people that either leave our churches or come into our churches from another place who have those war stories or those horror stories about what happened to them in their upbringing or what happened to them in their former church, where fill in the blank, whether that's the name of a pastor or the name of an organization or whatever it may be, fill in the blank was just so cold and mean and hateful or legalistic or whatever, throw in that label. That person has had a bad relational experience and has now decided to seek out a new fellowship. For those who actually deconstruct the faith or seek to disentangle from fundamentalism altogether, they're not just seeking out a new fellowship, but they're seeking a new foundation. They're pursuing a new foundation for even their worldview. For some, they choose human reason, science, culture. These are those who totally deconstruct the faith. Deconstruction is a word that means mow it all down. We're tearing it all down and we're starting all over. I want a totally new outlook on life. And we'll talk about them in just a moment. There are some people whose new foundation is minimal, minimal doctrine. You know, doctrine's too divisive. It, it just leads right into people fighting, I'm tired of that. I want a new experience with Christianity. And it becomes very self-centered usually, focused on personal experience. These people are opting, at least for the moment, to save something of their faith. They don't want to abandon Christianity, but they do want to abandon fundamentalism. And then there's another group, the people who are seeking extra-biblical reassurances for their faith. I can call them, and I think I do call them later in this uh, slideshow, the Bible Plus group. They're They're only disentangling. They're not deconstructing the faith. However, they do not want to be labeled as fundamentalists. And there have been so many uh, good speakers so far, and there's a lot of overlap with what I'm presenting to you today from what we've already heard. For instance, if you were in Jesse Randolph's presentation uh, earlier today, he talked about this extra-biblical group pretty much the whole time. That would be a great seminar for you to listen to if you missed that, Um, and thinking about Joel Tetro's type A, type B, type C fundamentalist, that plays into this too. But there are those who are seeking reassurances beyond the Bible, who are disentangling from fundamentalism, and they're opting to embrace, from their perspective, a more stable and secure faith that is guarded by confessions, church history, and denominational structure. So to give you like a big picture idea, here's a really rudimentary flow chart that I made. Uh, What happens is someone is in biblical fundamentalism, that person encounters conflict, and then bang, that person goes off to find a new foundation for his or her worldview. And so I want to spend the rest of our time talking through these three worldviews. And again, I don't believe this is exhaustive. I'm not saying that this covers everybody by any means, but I think this actually covers some of the bigger movements that we're seeing in the religious landscape today. Many people leave biblical fundamentalism due to relational conflict that prompts them to seek a new worldview foundation, and that in turn gives them hope that they will not be burned by another church again. That's what's going on. They don't want to be burned again. So where are they going? Where are they going? And perhaps we could more accurately say, what are they actually being influenced by before they go? (laughs) What are they being influenced by while they're still in our churches? As we walk through these three landing spots for people who leave fundamentalism as I'm presenting it today... The goal is to understand the competing voices so that we can more effectively counter the contemporary dissension, counsel the disgruntled, and prepare the next generation more adequately. I've got my children in here with me today, and some of you with your children or your grandchildren or great grandchildren, I'm sure you look at them and you think, what kind of world are they going to inherit? What kind of church experiences are they going to have with how rapidly everything's changing in our culture, how rapidly so many churches or denominations are turning apostate, just giving in? Well, we need to understand the voices that are out there competing that we can more, hopefully, uh, we can more effectively prepare the next generation. And so the three main destinations that match the three foundations I presented to you that we're going to talk about are apostasy, big tent Christianity, and confessionalism or the high church group. So as we think about those whose new foundation is human reason, science, and culture, these are those who deconstruct. These are the apostate influencers that exist out there in the religious world. The deconstructionist whose new foundation is comprised of these three things. And in our day, of course, this often means wokeism, At a minimum, these are those who have embraced secular philosophy or empty religion. And all this does, of course, is expose their lack of conversion. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. So when a person leaves one of our churches or wherever that person may be who had a profession of faith and is now professing essentially apostasy that reveals that that person was never born again. That person was never sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. That person was always lost. That person was a tear among the wheat and has just now exposed himself or herself early. These are people who have familiarity with fundamentalist culture and they know how to harshly critique us. And perhaps you know some of these people. Joshua Harris is a pretty popular, famous name from recent history. He's the one who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was with C.J. Mahaney in his church. He had a lot of notoriety. And uh, this picture, it's really tiny, but that picture is him at a pride parade. That's where he is now. Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal, they're YouTubers that have a very popular daily YouTube show called Good Mythical Morning. They also have a podcast on the side. They have more listeners than any of our podcasts ever will, probably. And they went through a whole series a couple of years ago, deconstructing their faith, talking about how they walked away from the faith. They were actually evangelists with Campus Crusade for Christ, and now they are apostates. Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, he is very vocal on TikTok. If you've ever seen any of his videos, he is just very, very uh, open about his feelings toward biblical fundamentalism. And he is uh, extremely anti. Paul Maxwell, he was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He now proclaims to be agnostic. He said that he needed to learn self-love. Jen Hatmaker, she was a conservative author, speaker, even a television star. She had a reality TV show with HGTV or something like that. She is now pro all sexual immorality. Seems like there's no limit on that. Musicians are falling off uh, all over the place. John Steingard, he was in Hawk Nilsen, he's now an atheist. Kevin Max, he was in DC Talk, he describes himself as a mystic now. Derek Webb was the lead singer of Cademan's Call. He's now a secular liberal. He has a song off his new album called God in Drag. He uh, just released a song titled Boys Will Be Girls, and he uh, featured a drag queen named Flamey Grant in that song. So they're pretty vocal about uh, being anti-biblical in every single way. And uh, they're still evangelists. You, we know this, right? Everybody's an evangelist for something. Well, they are still reaching out. Here are, here's a sample of some of their podcasts, the ex Exvangelical podcast, Modesty Files that goes and mocks purity culture and helps people deconstruct purity principles that they learned growing up. A podcast called Growing Up Fundy, and you can see the crack there in the facade about, uh, you know, here we are breaking away from fundamentalism. This group called Pass the Mic, maybe you remember a few years ago, there was the Leave Loud campaign where woke people were told to leave their churches and to do so loudly. Make a scene when you leave. Cause a stir. See if you can break the church up. Well, that was started by the Pass the Mic group with their podcast. They're also on social media. Here's an Instagram page, Deconstructing Purity Culture, 32,000 followers, Recovering from a Lifetime of Purity Culture, and Exvangelical. Happy Whole Way, 38,000 followers, Healing Religious Harm Coaches, Teaching Women the Tools to Rebuild Their Lives After Religious Harm. Not saying religious harm doesn't exist, but I'm thinking we're going to have different definitions of what that is. How about this group, your favorite heretics? At least they're honest about who they are. Uh, Not the favorite part, but the heretics part. 49,000 followers on Instagram. Partners advocating for religious trauma survivors and navigating the life after. Michael Gungor, he was in the Christian music scene. He tweeted this recently, as he's an apostate now. I've made the most absurd career choices. I'm like a survivor of a traumatic fire who asks other fire survivors if they are interested in learning fire dancing. They're proud to be vocal and to be evangelical against fundamentalism, against all things biblical. Now, I'm going to put this up here. This isn't anything new for you guys. Um, But this is the way I see it. When people are going full deconstruction, when people are going full tear-it-down mode, plow-it-down, I see these as the common steps that direction. It does begin with inerrancy. It begins with questioning the inspiration of the Bible. And you know inspiration and inerrancy are linked. If you have one, you have the other. If you lose one, you lose the other. And so they start questioning the nature of the Bible itself. And you know that when that happens, it's all downhill from there. Genesis is an easy target after that. You buy into evolution, you buy into secular theory, you buy into the latest scientific re- uh, synthesis of what we are and what we are to do in life. Man is just the product of evolution. The Old Testament as a whole, then, can be rejected. If you're going to reject Genesis, why would you accept Exodus, for example? And on and on it goes. If you're going to question the whole Old Testament, then what's your basis for morality? Why would you have any kind of basis for what is right and what is wrong, if, whole, if the whole of God's law should be questioned? And then you get into the New Testament, and people like to pick on Paul. You know this, right? Oh, that's just Paul, a chauvinist. And it seems like the last step is always Jesus. And for many, they have a hard time giving up Jesus. Jen Hatmaker, for example, very liberal. She, she's not going to give up Jesus, it seems. Now, she's redefined God. She's redefined sin. She's redefined salvation. She's redefined everything, but she doesn't want to let go of the person of Jesus. But eventually, people do get there. You know this old comic. It's still true. It's still relevant. People walk away from Christianity following the descent of the modernists. Questioning the infallibility of the Bible, questioning the Imago Dei in man, questioning miracles, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the atonement and resurrection of Christ, landing in agnosticism and atheism. It's the same thing, just played over in a different way. So the first group of where people go is total apostasy, that is deconstruction. The next group is what I'm calling big tent Christianity. You can just call it evangelicalism. I think I would prefer to call it evolved evangelicalism because it's a moving target. It's a changing landscape. And these are people who have not fully deconstructed, but they might. They might, and we'll talk through that. These are the disentanglers who are separating from the separatism of biblical fundamentalism. I was pretty proud of that sentence. They, they basically want a safe, friendly Christianity without the doctrinal division. Their new foundation becomes personal experience. Their separation from fundamentalism leads them to swimming in the bigger pond of evolving evangelicalism. They feel closer to God and truth through hearing other perspectives and being open, which is why many are actually on their way to deconstruction. Now, I do want to say that there are some good things inside the tent, thinking of big tent Christianity or evolved evangelicalism. It's like a big flea market or a big Walmart. There's some good stuff in there. Uh, There are people that I'm going to mention here in the next couple of minutes, and you'll think, oh, I like him or her, I like that thing or whatever, and I I might too. But there's also a lot of questionable stuff going on in there. And so um, I want us to put our critical thinking caps on as we consider this. The people who end up in this place are tired of the fighting that so often happens within fundamentalism. Those who go this direction are likely leaving fundamentalism because of the tension stemming from Christian infighting. Many people have a good and godly desire to see a more unified Christianity. For those who are truly born again, who disentangle from the label of fundamentalism, they kind of want to distance themselves from that, but they're born again and they want Christian unity... You can affirm them in that, can't you? I think that's a great desire. We should want to see, even if at the end of the day, we go to different houses of worship on Sunday morning, we can affirm one another's faith and we can have a basic unity. And I think a lot of people want that. I think there's a good desire that a lot of people have. However, in big tent Christianity, peace is achieved by stripping away theological distinctives, favoring a bare minimum approach to the Christian life. This often results in a de-emphasizing the, of the importance of personal Bible study in the local church, leaving many believers immature. If you were here this morning at the theological uh, Q&A with uh, Dr. Vargas and the speakers, they talked through this a little bit. Those, those churches that have as their doctrinal statement the Apostles' Creed. Well, that's good as far as it goes, but in our day and age, that just doesn't go very far. I, I still have a ton of questions. As they pointed out, those ecumenical creeds aren't touching on the salvation issues, not getting to the heart of some stuff that I I really care about. The Apostles' Creed's not telling me what hermeneutic you use, and I care about that, right? Because I'm a fundamentalist. So there's that issue that goes on where people want to minimize doctrine, and that leaves them open to some bad influences. So who's inside the tent? Here's the way I'm going to break this down. Again, not exhaustive. One man's way of categorizing this. You kind of have your academic section of the tent, where there's a scholarly realm that still holds to the gospel, but the other doctrines seem to be up in the air. Perhaps you've, used, you've heard the term Big Eva, or you've used the term Big Eva, Eva for evangelicalism. Like there's Big Pharma that exists, there's Big Eva. These would be the people like maybe N.T. Wright or Russell Moore, Uh, The Roy's Report, I would put Julie Roy's and and her journalism in that realm too. The books that come out of Big Eva, there's an academic realm. There's also an experiential realm. There are a lot of seeker churches out there, the charismatic movements, fruition these days that we can look around and see that is largely comprised of mysticism and just overall self-centeredness. Mega churches like Stephen Furtick's Elevation Church or Mike Todd's Transformation Church in Tulsa, these are humongous churches that have an even bigger online influence. When I say humongous churches, I mean tens of thousands of people in person on the weekend. And when I say even bigger online, averaging hundreds of thousands of views per sermon. So then they peak, the, some sermons peak up to the millions, but a baseline, they averaged 300,000, 400,000 views per quote unquote sermon. And I'm not going to feel bad about the air quotes. Now, Life.church is another one there. Craig Rochelle, he's also in Oklahoma. A lot of online churches that have popped up. I think it was Life Church that even tried doing virtual reality church, VR church. If we debated about how to do communion during COVID, can you imagine having a debate about how to do communion or baptism in a VR church? Sheesh. Okay, I'm going to say K-Love Christians. I'm going to to make that a corner of the tent. Um, Throw stones if you'd like. K-Love Christians are those who hold to a minimal Christianity that's often personalized to a fault. And I'm going to throw a lot of names into there, like um, the Bob Goffs or the Lisa Turkhurst, Mark Batterson, Dave Ramsey, Henry Cloud, Dallas Jenkins, Beth Moore, a lot of these influential names that we know, some of which we like. There are a couple names in there that I enjoy listening to and I do listen to on a regular basis. But much of this is the result of the purpose-driven movement. I think that has, that has resulted in this corner of the big tent. And then there's, of course, a liberal end to all of this. These are people that have one foot in deconstruction. The Brian McLarens that exist, if you remember his name from the emergent church movement a number of years ago. There's a, a guy out there named David Gushy. Uh, those who call themselves ex-evangelicals, though they are still holding to a form of Christianity, they are pretty openly liberal. They're open hand on almost every doctrine that exists. So they're not really Christians. And I know this is going to be small for you to read, but what I added here is that the potential for wokeness in this tent is high because detecting critical theory requires scrutiny, requires discernment. And so you'll see a lot of churches that fit into this kind of category, playing right into the hand of the woke movement. Uh, In fact, there's a pastor in Philadelphia, Eric Mason, a Dallas Seminary grad who wrote the book, Woke Church. Some people don't realize the foreword for that book was written by Ligon Duncan. Um, They're just open to that. They're interested in that. There's a church that uh, I know, I've got a a family member who attends this church. It's a big, more seeker-type church. When everything was happening in 2020 or 2019, whatever it was, with um, all the riots happening in all the cities across America and all the race relations getting really tense again, they were very much open to having this conversation about how white people can atone for all of their sins. It was all rooted in critical theory stuff. This is from Rick Warren's Twitter. Here's an example of big tent evangelicalism. Wait, I should go back a little bit. Give a context. Uh, if you weren't paying attention, Rick Warren turned into a madman over the last month or so. Uh, leading up to the Southern Baptist Convention, Rick Warren decided it was his mission in life to try to turn the Southern Baptist Convention egalitarian. And so he took to Twitter you know, it's funny, these guys criticize Donald Trump's Twitter, and then he goes on and does the exact same thing. And uh, So anyway, he goes on, and he, this is his pitch to Southern Baptists about why there should be female pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, Our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is 4,032 words. We disagree with only one word. Men. We're in 99.9999999% agreement. They're not, by the way. Uh, that's not the right math. Um, it would be like 99.98 or whatever. So, you know, whatever. And then he just asked the question is that close enough? Because that's the perspective here. When you leave biblical fundamentalism, you get to this view of saying, look, let's not divide. Let's separate from separatism. Let's minimize our doctrinal distinctives so that way there can be more unity. And again, part of that we want to affirm, we want more unity. But we obviously can't join Rick Warren in this. We have to draw the line. So that's that second group, Big Tent Christianity. Third group is that Bible Plus group. These are the, the ones who are probably most like us uh, culturally and in some other ways. They maintain a robust profession of faith while, on the other hand, finding security in structure and history beyond the Bible. So that's why they're called Bible Plus or the confessionalist group. These are people who want to disengage, disentangle from fundamentalism for the sake of being defined in a different way, finding their identity in church history or even church structure. Some people in this group will find a non-denominational fellowship that holds to a particular confession from church history, but others will find comfort in a historically rooted denomination like Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, or Lutheranism. These extra-biblical reassurances help the Christian feel safe from the perceived dangers of biblical fundamentalism. So I I really think the dangerous versus safe paradigm is what's at play here. Fundamentalism is dangerous. You're rogue. Um, As uh, Gary Gilley was talking about earlier, the way they would characterize us is you open your Bible in the morning and you've got no memory of anything you've ever learned from the Bible and you read a passage and the, the word Trinity shouldn't exist because it's not in the Bible and, and you just go rogue and you, you develop your own system of theology as an individual. That's what they say Biblicism is because we don't hold to the confessions like they do. And they say, look, it's much more safe. We have hundreds of years of proven history now to, to join in with a confession and let that serve as the protective cage here where nothing bad can get in. So you have to basically marry a confession, is what they're advocating for. Now this movement is helpful, but it is different. Though they're not dispensational, many in this camp are committed to the fundamentals of the faith just like we are. And they're often very doctrinal. Many of them, the vast majority of them I would say, are not woke. And they know how to defend themselves against wokeism. However, as history has revealed, confessionalism and denominationalism can be a pathway to liberalism and apostasy. We know this. Some who land in this camp seem to be on their way there. Again, if you were in Jesse Randolph's seminar earlier, some of the quotes from guys in this camp were pretty eyebrow-raising. Thus, the Bible Plus group varies. Larger historical denominations exist on one end of the spectrum, so you can think about your Episcopalian church down the street with the lesbian lady pastor. And then on the other end, you have something like a non-denominational Reformed Baptist church on the other. There is a foundational difference between our churches and theirs, and it does have to do with the Confessions. Instead of maintaining a fundamentalist view of the Bible as their foundation, some of our Reformed brothers have added the historical creeds and confessions to the basis of their faith. And that's an important phrase. I'm not saying they they recognize them as helpful, because we should all recognize them as helpful. I'm not saying that they uh, see them as valuable to even teach in their churches, because they are valuable to teach in our churches. But I'm saying they've added them to the basis of their faith. Many seem to find this as a safe and intellectual alternative to the fundamentalism in which many of them were raised. And that's something you end up finding out as you listen to these guys. Sooner or later it comes out they've got an axe to grind. They were burned by somebody. And that's why they ended up there. So this does get right into the biblicism versus confessionalism debate that can be somewhat obfuscated. It's a conservative Christian debate. It, uh, I would actually offer a new phrasing of that. It's like the fundamentalist versus Bible plus debate. No one is going to like that terminology, but I do. And uh, it's taking place among conservative Christians only. It's not something that liberal mainline denominations are interested in joining. They've given up on all certainty of any truth whatsoever anyway. Why would they be in an argument with us? And so this is between our reformed confessionalist brothers and people like us. They call us biblicists, and that's supposed to be an insult. I say supposed to be because I don't think anybody in this room cares. So uh, someone that uh, Jesse mentioned earlier, a guy who actually started in Jesse Randolph's church, Pat Abendroth, he lists out in the first episode of his podcast called The Pactum, He talks about the problems with Biblicism, and he lists these four issues. Biblicism downplays doctrinal development through history. So he's saying as a confessionalist, he goes to church history, and he doesn't downplay church history. He finds some identity, some consistency with who he is in church history. Whereas Biblicists, we go to church history and we say, we're not married to that. We can go rogue if we want. And that kind of flows into these other points. He says Biblicism frowns upon theological labels. And I know that there would be many of us in this room who would be uncomfortable with certain labels, probably because everybody defines labels differently, it seems. How many of us would be comfortable saying just outright with no nuance, with no further commentary, I'm a Calvinist or I'm not a Calvinist? None of us would, right? None of us would. We would want to have a conversation. So, yeah, in a way, we do frown upon theological labels. He says that biblicists are focused on the novel, We don't care about existing systems. We don't try to comport with existing systems of theology. But instead, and really this is just him talking about dispensationalism, we're okay with introducing a whole new view of the Bible. That's how he would characterize it, I'm sure. And just linking ourselves to that, ignoring the nearly 2,000 years of church history that came before it. So many things we'd like to say to that kind of presentation of dispensationalism. Uh, Doctors Marsh and Fazio would have a lot to say about that with their book, Discovering Dispensationalism. And then fourth, he says, it's used as an excuse to be inconsistent. So because we don't comport with their existing systems, we would say, well, look, yeah, we, we agree with you on this, but we don't agree with, on, with you on that. They say, well, you're inconsistent. And we say, okay, but that's what the Bible says right? And then they say, well, you're just a biblicist. That's really how rudimentary uh, this conversation can get. So I want to highlight some of the voices out there, just in case you bump into them so you can know. Um, These are voices who tend to find their audience among conservative Christians who are dissatisfied with either fundamentalism or big tent Christianity and are seeking an anchor for their faith. So maybe they've been people who have been in that evolved evangelicalism world. And they said, no, we need something more serious. And they end up here. Or maybe there are people who were in churches like ours and they say, you know, um, yeah, I'm not comfortable with this Bible only type stuff. Uh, I want more of a connection to the creeds, confessions, and church history. And so they go this way. These are not people who apostatize. These are people who only disentangle from either fundamentalism or evangelicalism. There are some uh, pretty big voices out there. There's a podcast called Theocast, and there's one called The Baptist Broadcast that reach a lot of people. Matthew Barrett was referenced a lot in uh, Jesse Randolph's seminar. He has the Credo podcast. He also has Credo magazine. NoCo Radio has been around for quite some time. That's kind of a fascinating case study, actually. That is uh, Mike Abendroth, Pat's brother. Mike Abendroth is a master's grad. And what you'll find about some of these guys is they were master's grads. They were MacArthurites. Kind of through and through, they were very loyal to that system, and then they got burned, and now they've run to the Bible Plus view, the confessionalist view, and they throw bombs at fundamentalism now. It's kind of an interesting situation. And he would kind of fit into that category. And then you've got a couple of different podcasts by uh, R. Scott Clark. Jesse also mentioned him earlier. He's got the Heidel blog and the Heidel cast where he talks through the Heidelberg catechism. Uh, but these voices are very anti-fundamentalist. That's what's just really interesting about this. They hate the label fundamentalist. They don't want to be associated with fundamentalism. But we agree so much on so many things, but they think we're wacky. They think we're crazy people. They don't want anything to do with us uh, on a broader level. So how should we respond to this? This really is the most important question. We have about 15 minutes left, I think. And so I want us to focus our time here on these last 15 minutes, thinking about how we should respond to this. And I want us to start by remembering something really important that we can perhaps forget through all of this. We want people to embrace biblical fundamentalism. That That's a goal of ours. We want that to happen. And we want that to happen while they're still in our churches. I mean, re- recruiting is great. <laughs> uh, evangelizing, someone going from Roman Catholic or Anglican or something like that, or even atheist to biblical fundamentalist is is. Great, we, we need that. But we also need to make sure that people who are new believers already in our church or the children in our churches, that they understand what biblical fundamentalism is and that they are able to articulate it, that they're able to defend it, that they are not learning just a culture. They will inevitably learn a culture. That's just going to be part of it. But not just a culture. We want them to also be learning Scripture. We want them to know the Word of God. We want them to have the Word of God in their hearts, that they may not sin against God, that they would grow up and that they would raise the next generation as biblical fundamentalists. So our response must start, as we think about this, our our response must start with self-examination. Because there are significant hurdles standing in between some people and this label. But in order to reclaim this name, we must make sure that we have our own houses in order. We must take care that we are doing our part to ensure that there is no legitimate reason for someone to accuse us of one of those pop fundamentalism labels that will so often push somebody away from what we believe is the best Bible teaching they can get in town. We don't want to push people away from that. We want to do everything we can, as Scripture says, to be at peace with all men. Apply that to this context. And I do not want to uh, present this like I'm saying that we can somehow cause apostasy to cease. Okay? We, we can't do that. We're, we're promised that there will be apostasy. But again, as far as it depends on you, you can remove the hurdles that exist between a person and biblical fundamentalism. Remember these labels. Okay, let's bring these back into our minds. These labels that will sometimes be ascribed to us, and dare I say, sometimes rightly so. The goal is that these would not be said rightly of you. People will slander you, you can't prevent that. But let's not have these be truthful accusations. Let's make it our aim to cultivate healthy churches. We want to cultivate healthy churches as we seek to attract people to biblical fundamentalism. And that can start by ministering with integrity. We want to minister with integrity. 1 Timothy 4.16. I'm sorry it's taking me so long to get to the Bible. I hate it when people talk so long without letting God speak. So sorry about that. But let's get Bible in this. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a lot on the line, isn't it? Yourself and your hearers. We are to persist in keeping a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. So what does that mean? Well, we are to pursue accountability in all areas of ministry as a way of doing our part to be at peace with all men. Minister with integrity. Make sure there are accountability structures in your church that you're being held accountable, not just in like blatant black and white moral issues. I mean, you should definitely have that at a minimum, but also that you have elders, deacons, whoever it may be in your church, who you have said explicitly, you have the green light to call me out if my personality is just stomping all over people. Because that is so subjective, and we can always defend ourselves and say, no, I didn't do that. I wasn't meaning that, yada, yada, yada. Well, how about you let someone else who's actually listened to you tell you that? If you let someone else hold you accountable, someone you trust, you might get some extremely valuable feedback that could save a relationship and keep a person from leaving your church. We want to minister with integrity and we want to teach accessibly. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, a very familiar verse, Paul said, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Those two things go together patience and teaching. That we would reprove, rebuke, and exhort with total patience and teaching. Solid laymen make a solid church and advance our movement. The IFCA podcast is called Advancing the Cause. How how are we going to advance the cause? Well, it starts with our churches. Our movement's nothing without our churches. And our churches are nothing without the lay people who make up our churches. And solid lay people are going to make a solid church. Therefore, we must prioritize our congregation's grasp of Scripture and their ability to study it for themselves. That's always been our strength. That's always been our strength. In biblical fundamentalism, it's been being able to teach people in an accessible way. That they would say, ah, that makes sense. And I can do that for myself. I mean, think of the impact that Warren Wiersbe has had. By being just a solid, simple Bible teacher. That is our strength in our movement. And we need to keep that going. And then finally, we also need to counsel Carefully. As we think about those who have been burned by fundamentalism, who may end up in our churches, it's our duty to counsel them. And I think about this passage in Jude, where it says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, Devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. You're going to encounter people who are doubting just true biblical Christianity, And it's because they've had a bad experience with biblical fundamentalism. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These people who have been burned by fundamentalism, who end up in our churches, they can be some of the most difficult people to work with. I've worked with several in Utah, so if I'm in Utah and I've worked with them, I imagine you have too in your churches. Um, some of them are overly aggressive. They've become like contrarians in the church. They're just antagonistic. They're there. They, they sometimes won't leave when you want them to leave. <laughs> the kind of people that when they leave, you send them a cheesecake and say thanks, but uh, they're, they're just hanging around and they're just contrarian. There are some who are almost like abused dogs that you you would pick up from the pound or something, that you try to love on them and they're scared. Or they bite back. Because they have been abused. Because there are people who end up in our churches who truly have been affected by the bad form of fundamentalism. Pop fundamentalism. Many have been burned by cultural fundamentalism. But to find healing in our types of churches... We must tend to them with shepherds' hearts. We have to figure that out. We have to to figure out how to do that because we want them to embrace biblical fundamentalism. We want to join them in their sorrow about being burned by false fundamentalism, and we want to show them a better way. Now here's where I uh, give myself a little plug. One way to do that is to learn how to articulate the... The Doctrines of Christianity and how important certain doctrines are compared to other doctrines. Perhaps some of you have seen this chart. It's a chart that I've developed with Ken Chipchase for our podcast, Do Theology, where it makes distinctions between primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, and doubtful things. Now, that's way too small for you to read, for you to take in right now. So you can go to, look at this cool animation. You can go to dotheology.com slash chart, and you can get that for free. We have it in Spanish. We have it in Romanian. We have it in black and white. You can print it off and get it however you'd like. And that's important. And I'm not just saying that because I made it, though that's a part of why I'm saying that. (laughs) Okay, Uh, It's important. Uh, For instance, we had a few years ago some former Mennonites show up in our church on a Sunday morning. First thing I got them was this chart. Because they just left, I come to find out later, they just left a group that said, you aren't allowed to have wedding rings. They just left a group that said, you got to take the radio out of your car. They just left a group, if you can believe this, that said, if a man is wearing a shirt that has more than one color from 10 feet away, the colors must blur together with the naked eye. Okay, that's not keeping doctrine in its place, is it? We have to be able to articulate to people who come into our churches that we're not like that. And we can't just say we're not like that because they've heard that before. We have to be able to give them some substance, some scriptural backing. And I actually think we have an opportunity to present a mediating view. When you think of all the options that exist out there for someone who has freaked out by fundamentalism, looking to deconstruct or disentangle I actually think we, the IFCA movement here, we have the opportunity to present a mediating view. So you can... Oops, I wanted to do my animation again. So you can picture it uh, this way. where Here we are in the middle. You have legalism and the Bible Plus movement above and the Big Tent Christianity and apostasy below. You have these two groups at the top adding to Scripture. They're adding to what God has given us in order to find some sort of security. And then you have the bottom two groups taking away from Scripture, minimizing what Scripture has to say. And ideally, what we would be doing in our churches is saying, here's the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, let's study the Bible. And we would teach people to read it, study it for themselves, and grow through the Word of God. When I was thinking through how to classify this, how to conceptualize this in a certain way, I was thinking about this Bible Plus group, about where to put them, and even how to talk about them in the uh, tetro, Joel Tetro terms of type A, type B, type C. If you're not familiar with that, just real briefly, type A fundamentalists are those who are really legalistic. They're, they're militant about separation, to a fault. Type B fundamentalists would be Those like us, we we do practice separation, that's in our doctrinal statements, Uh, so we see the need for separation. Yet at the same time, uh, we're not afraid to join with other organizations that may not call themselves fundamental when it comes to certain efforts. We're not going to be separatists to the extreme. That's the type A people. And the type C fundamentalists are those who uh, are looking to draw from a bigger audience so they don't often talk about separation. And they're the ones who will speak together at the conferences like T4G or G3, where a Baptist will share the stage with the Presbyterian and that sort of thing. That are, they're still fundamentalists in practice in many ways, or at least on paper, but they don't usually like to use that label. So I was thinking about this Bible Plus movement, the confessionalists, and thinking, where do they go? And I really do think they belong with the legalists. So many of them have ended up in confessionalism because they're trying to avoid legalism. And what they've done is they've made doctrinal legalism. What they've done is they've said, you have to embrace this creed or this group of confessions in order to be the real deal. What you'll notice about that group is very few of them ever endorse anybody else or cooperate with anybody else. Even among themselves, they fight just like the independent fundamental Baptists they're always making fun of. So I think they are actually type A fundamentalists, just with a different kind of legalism. So in our churches, we have the opportunity to present a mediating view. And I'll end with this. We also have an opportunity to function in the extracurriculars beyond the walls of our local church. With any remaining time energy we have after ministering to the churches God has given us, We do well to pursue greater biblical influence in print and social media as well as in the many contemporary audio-video options that exist. A hundred years ago, the fundamentalists, thinking about Machen, Chafer, others, they fought for control of denominations, but today we're fighting for influence in the digital age. That's where a lot of the the fight is to win the hearers is in the, the digital world. Uh, in Dr. Vargas 's article that I mentioned at the top of this presentation, he highlighted how our movement's strength has been in training the local church plus print media, along with movies, along with radio. Today, that's podcasting and YouTube, right? Or uh, an audio book, That's always been our movement's strength is to provide those types of materials even outside the walls of our local church. And so we always need to keep that in mind too and look for creative ways to reach more people. Well, that's where I'll end it today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. If you want uh, this slideshow, you can just email me. If you want to connect with me other ways, you can do so with that info there. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. Thank you for this convention, for what is represented here. Thank you for the doctrine that we have unity on here, that we cherish your word together. We love your word, and we want to approach your word with reverence and in an ethical way to understand what it is that you have said in the context in which it is written, that you would speak to us in that way and mature us, change us, develop us, shape us into the person of Jesus Christ. Help us as we go back to our churches and consider more this week as we continue to go to uh Uh, classes and seminars. Help us to take so many great insights from this back to our churches that we would, by your your grace, strengthen the local church. We know that you care for your bride dearly. Your people were bought with the blood of your son. Help us to love them with your love. Help us to care for them with, with that mercy that you led Jude to write about that we would have mercy on those who doubt, that we would preach the word with patience, that we would be known for the way that we keep ourselves in the love of God while also upholding faithful, biblically faithful doctrine. God, that's our desire, and we know we can only do it by your Spirit's strength. We ask that you would give us the power to do this in great unity and that the IFCA would be a blessed organization for generations to come until you return until we realize that blessed hope that we have before us. God, thank you so much for this time and for uh, this opportunity that we have to reach so many people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.